It's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. We're kidding ourselves if we think people will stop talking. You're one of the Monterey Five, right? Monterey Five? Just the way he said it, you know. How did he say it? Like we all have scarlet letters on our backs. It's gonna get us, it's gonna get us all. What are you talking about? The lie. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Big Little Lies. I am Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you are just joining us for the first time, what we do every week is break down the latest episode of Big Little Lies. Uh, we usually have an interview with someone from the show. This week, we've got the great PJ Byrne, who plays uh, Principal Nepal, uh, who had some great things to say about improvising with Laura Dern for his big scene with her. Uh, <laughs> Quite a scene. Episode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, and you know, we read emails from you guys and and just genuinely, like, soak in the saltiness that is monterey california this summer so uh though i found out from you know well i guess since it's back to school it's fall fall in monterey summer in our hearts um that is what is going on but yeah so richard today we're here to talk about season two episode three um before we get to some listener emails and all of that i was just wondering if you if you had like one storyline, if you had to pick one um, of our big little liars of the Monterey Six, who do you think had like the best or most successful storyline uh, in this episode? Hmm. I think I I I think Madeline probably. All right. Um, so you're you're feeling like the rainbow connection on stage meltdown situation. I mean that I guess a little bit less so. I I I mean I don't I want to save my like bigger take for later <laughs> in this episode. But <laughs> this episode was a bit of a mess for me, and mm. um, I think that like everyone was kind of spinning off the planet. I, I guess actually, you know what? I'm gonna say Jane. Yes, I well I agree. I love that you gave an answer. I'm like really, and then, <laughs> like, then you right. gave my answer, and I was like, oh yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, Jane, Jane and her fledgling uh, romance slash all the stuff she gets to do with Mary Louise in this episode. So I agree with that. That's that's where I am standing. Um, and then also I wanted to ask you a slightly sillier question, which is I don't know. We we had the idea of doing like a little a little like prompt every episode, a little like question for ourselves, best of or whatever. Um, Last week, Richard counseled against us doing like some sort of best dressed, and I decided to sneakily do it anyway. And then we got a lot of emails about how I misidentified b- labels and brands. And uh, that's why we're not doing a fashion watch on Big Little Lies, uh, because the Joanna's like, oh, that's Gucci, and listeners like this Chanel, dummy. So uh, let's not dwell on that. Let's instead talk about architecture, something we're very, very well trained on. Um, I just wanted to ask Richard, 
if he had to pick, if you had to pick like one of the houses of the Monterey Six to live in, which one would you pick and why? Um, this is where I'm going to say Madeline um, because I I really do mean it. <laughs> uh, her house is so cozy in a way that the uh, some of the others aren't. Like, I don't know, like Celeste's house is obviously haunted and just like cold and Renata's is too kind of over the top. I don't know. I just, I like the sort of like chunky lived in i don't know textures of madeline's house um but i realize that might be a boring answer no no no, that's a good answer she's got that great surround sound system a nice open sort of like kitchen plan Mm -hmm. all of that um she just really has like the luxury of the seaside without um like seeming so over the top and austere in a way that renata and, and celeste homes do um and then you know like jane's living in this you know, if you want to talk about cozy, her place is real cozy, which is like a little apartment um, by the sea. But I want to hit a middle ground, which is Bonnie and Nathan's home, mm-hmm. um, which is like a little like hippie, which is a little bit more my taste. And uh, there's just like plants everywhere, a lot of wood, hanging pots in the kitchen. Like it really feels like somebody lives there in a way that like, I think you were kind of described. Madeline's house feels more lived in than Celeste and Renata, but I think Bonnie's feels even more lived in. You know what I mean? Like you get the idea that like a kid could leave something out and someone wouldn't like fussily come up behind them and clean it up. Do you know? Um, yeah, no, that's yeah. very true. I think that like the journey of this podcast for this show in particular is just going to be re- me revealing how kind of basic I am. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, I like Reese and her nice pottery barn house. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's it's a beautiful house and and they always have beautiful music playing. So uh, so who wouldn't want to live there? I'm Claire Fallon and I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show. Love to see it. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And then we got an email from uh, a listener named Susie who uh, wanted to write in and talk about how scary she finds... Mary Louise, a Meryl Streep's character. Um, she used some like rabbit and snake imagery in her in her email. Um, this this sort of like idea of of how unassuming um, Mary Louise is and her sort of rabbitiness, but how snaky she is and some of her other maneuvers. Um, do you find this character to be scary? Like, how are you feeling about Mary Louise at this point, given this third episode uh, as well? Hmm. I think that in this episode in particular, I would find her scarier if I found her more believable. Mm, okay. um, I, th- You know what I mean? Uh, no, tell me more what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that like the way that this episode has her sort of popping up and sort of staring at people from across the parking lot and then, you know, sort of just insisting her way into each character's life. It's just like... I don't I don't know that that would happen as seamlessly as it seems to be happening. I feel like everyone would be kind of freaking out about this mother sort of stalking these people. Um I mean not actually stalking, but you know what I mean, she's just sort of like she's just sort of following them and 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 unsettling things and I feel like that that would be really weird. Uh and I feel like the characters are not really appropriately reacting. Yeah, I mean, I I understand Celeste uh, okay. 
on the one hand, I agree with you. On the other hand, I wonder how much guilt comes into play. Like if they feel guilty right. for Perry's death and then Mary Louise, yes, is behaving like v- she's being very invasive and very critical and very just like off. And I would say like, no, thank you. You're not welcome in my house if I were a lot of these women. Um, but with Celeste especially, and then like with all of them, I think there is this guilt of like, we killed your son in a way, even though they didn't really. But like we're complicit in your son's murder sort of, if you want to think, even think of it that way. Um, but yeah, one thing I did like in terms of the Mary Louise and Jane interactions is, yeah, you're right. Her just showing up in the part in like Jane's parking, like driveway or whatever. If I were Jane, I'd be like, get the fuck out of here. Like I didn't say you could see my son. What the hell? Um, all of that. But on the other hand, they'll have a conversation and you're like sort of warming to Mary Louise because she seems like she's got this like slightly kindly grandmotherly thing going on or talking about wanting to be in Ziggy's life or something like that. And then she'll ask Jane to like tell her how nice her rapist was. Like, did you see goodness in your rapist basically? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so it's just sort of like this, it's just hard to get a handle on her. And I can't tell, I guess, if that's a, a genius performance and genius writing, or as you say, something a little less believable. You know what I mean? It could be kind of could be either with a skilled actress like Meryl Streep doing it. Does that make, does that make any sense? No. Yeah. Yeah. No, it does. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I don't know, something about this episode just hit some sort of like cranky button in me where I'm just like, nah. but, <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, I, 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 I think that like there's definitely a more nuanced read of, of, of this, this episode and, and that character for sure. Um, all right. And then I have one last thing, uh, to talk to you about before we sort of like, uh, run through the episode, which is, um, I've been hearing, People really want like a mystery and a larger conspiracy theory. And this is, of course, something I've seen in TV fandom, like across many different shows. We don't usually get it with something like Big Little Lies, though, of course, obviously, season one was a big mystery, like a mystery. Who's dead and who done it are like, you know, the the season one questions. Um, season two doesn't really have that. The question is, uh, as we discussed, I think, like, will this lie trip them up? Will the lie get them in the end or, or whatever? Will someone break? Who's going to break? Something like that. But we don't know. We don't have a flashback structure so we don't know that someone will necessarily but i've seen some people wondering if like uh renata's husband gordon if his um criminal woes or um are part of the police department's attempt to like put pressure on renata and i just don't i don't know that i think that they are uh overtly linked in that way i don't think this is like a sting to try to like crack renata on murder i just think that it's like another pressure point another thing to see that that exists that is true that could break one of our um women in the show does that does that make sense i don't think that it's like they're trying to entrap her via her husband or anything like that no, I think that would be a little overly complicated and sort of beyond the purview of a local police department. Right. Um, I think it's just like, they're all, I mean, Celeste is experiencing it more directly, obviously, but like everyone else is experiencing and Bonnie too, but um, particularly Renata, Madeline and, and are, are experiencing a sort of penance or not penance, but um, punishment, I yeah. guess. 
like, for for this yeah. kind of the, the original sin of the group. Um, and I, you know, as much as that's kind of like a literal metaphor, I, I think I think that's what it's all about. I don't, yeah, I don't think that these kind of le- the legality of this stuff is in- interconnected at all. My my the way I imagine it is, um, I always think of. Um, the, forgive me for a Star Wars detour, but Ryan Johnson, when talking about putting together The Last Jedi, his, his Star Wars and his controversial Star Wars installment, talked about how, um, when conceiving of the script, he tried to think of like the hardest thing, the most vulnerable thing for each character to have to grapple with, and then tried to like make them grapple with it. You know, so what is, you know, think of a character that you have to write that you're inheriting this for a story from someone else. He's inheriting the story from J.J. Abrams. Okay, so Ray is a fully formed character. What would be the hardest thing for her to have to deal with? Oh, that her parents were known and she's not burdened with some great destiny or something like that, or they're never coming back. And so he put that into a script. And so what I imagine David E. Kelly did for season two is he's trying, he and Leanne Moriarty are trying to figure out how to extend this season one story that has an ending to it. So how do you extend it into season two? How do you take these characters? And I feel like what they came up with is like, all right, let's think of something that could put an enormous amount of pressure on each of our characters that is outside this other thing that is already putting pressure on them. So for Renata, it's losing her fortune for, um, Madeline, it's losing, you know, her marriage, this infidelity, whatever. And then Celeste and Bonnie are both dealing with, um, mothers, intrusive mothers, the older generation sort of thing. Um, and then Jane, it's, I mean, I guess it's, it's both Mary Louise and it's this idea of, of trying to explore a romance, a relationship again, which is putting pressure on her, um, to relive sort of the trauma of what came before. Right. Um, and, and so that's, that's why I think that Renata thing exists there. I mean, there's the Emma mm-hmm. Bella stuff too, which we can talk about, but I think that's why that is there. Plus it just gives Laura Dern a chance to do what she does best in this, which is be over the top all the time. So there you go. Um, and then the last like sort of mystery question is um, some people are wondering if there's more we should uh, interrogate in terms of Perry's younger brother dying. Um, or brother dying when he was younger. Um, if we think Perry had something to do with it, if Mary Louise had something to do with it, or if, or if it's just like a thing that happened um, that helped shape both these characters. Do you have any like thoughts or theories on, on uh, Perry's poor dead brother, Raymond? Um, not immediately. I, I don't know. I think I was so focused this episode on, um, on sort of finding fault with some of the writing and actually I think the direction that I didn't really, that the little smaller details didn't really kind of, you know, um, connect for me. But I'm also like, you know, we're three episodes in and there are only four left in this season, right? Yeah. So if there was like a big thing that was sort of going to be the central, other than, you know, obviously the closing in of the, you know, the guilt and the whatever, I feel like it, it, it's, it's going to happen. So maybe, and maybe that's related to it. I don't know, but like maybe that's the thing that turns, you know, maybe there is like a thing with Perry and the brother where like, maybe that's the thing where that Mary, that gets Mary Louise sort of against Perry at some point. Like maybe there's history there or something. Um, because I, I don't know. I don't really feel like in the end they're going to make Mary Louise a villain because that's show, the show is not really about villainizing women. 
Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that turns. And, and I, I feel like kind of dropping a big detail, like about a brother or whatever, like that, um, that feels like they're maybe laying a little bit of the groundwork for, for her kind of switching sides, so to speak. Maybe. Yeah. There's, it's definitely like, I definitely think of Mary Louise more as an antagonist than a villain of this piece. You know what I mean? Like she's, they're at cross purposes, but like, some of the things she says, like when she, okay, to like go back to what I was saying earlier, when she, it's, it's bad for her to, to blindside Jane at work. That's like terrible and mm-hmm. awful. But at the same time, when she goes, you know, I'm confronted with this news that my son is not only like, you know, a philanderer, but a rapist. And I am desperate to figure out a way in which that isn't true. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, sympathetic that wish is sympathetic you know what i mean and so um how she's going about it the way in which she continues to overstep the line uh and and upset jane um and jane is right to be upset uh you know is one thing but like that that desire of like it's not the desire that the desire we talk about to like defend you know, defend your sons who are rapists against like uh, over overwhelming evidence or something like that. You know what I mean? Like I think of Brock Turner and his parents or whatever it is, you know, but it, but mm-hmm. it's more like, you know, your kid is dead and you not only is your kid dead, but like you didn't know this, maybe you willfully turned a blind eye to sort of um, his, his nastier, the nastier parts of him. But like, yeah, if, if, if I were a mother and I got this information, Denial would be a thing. Desperation for it not to be true would be a thing. Um, I would like to think that it would not blindside a woman at her job and her home uh, in order to pursue it. But, you know, it's, um, I don't know, there there are sympathetic aspects to Mary Louise. And that's, I think, what makes her so potentially great. Yeah. And also, I think her, her conversation with Detective Quinlan, um, you know, the, the, in some senses, you know, she's like, you don't really think he fell or whatever. And, like, I guess maybe... Maybe part of that isn't really her trying to nail these people. It's more like, I just need to know what actually happened. Yeah. You know, and and she is, I guess, in search of truth, even if she seems biased against the truth or a certain version of the truth or whatever. Um, yeah. I mean, there is nuance there. I'm, I'm, I think a less well-articulated show would have her be an extreme, you know, and I, right. and I don't think it's that. And I don't think there were... I don't think that this episode hit like extreme extremes. I think it just for me got a little bit outsized from the show at its best. Okay, so let's start. Let's let's go into that. Uh, some of the things that made you cranky in this episode, um, or actually, let's start with the thing that made me cranky in this episode. I yes, think the please. reason that for two episodes I've been pushing the whole like is Robin Weger's character a bad therapist <laughs> is because of this episode. <laughs> because uh-huh. like I watched this episode, and then I when I went back and watched like episode one and two, I was like, Jesus Christ! Um, I think she's off. Like, there's just so much going on in this episode. First of all. I'm not convinced Celeste and Madeline go to the same therapist. That feels like, you know, just it happens. People share therapists that happen sometimes, but like there, you want boundaries in your life and in your, you know, your practice and stuff like that. And so, and I think, especially with Celeste, I, I you know, even though I, I think there obviously were profound breakthroughs with this therapist last season. Um, and, 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 and I'm sure to some extent Celeste trusts, you know, confidentiality and all that. Like to even risk at all 
putting Natalie in the same room as the woman who she's confessed so many dark things to that not even Madeline knows the full extent of. Yeah. And all, and all this conflictedness about Perry and his death and mourning him and being turned on by his memory, all the, you know, all this complicated stuff. Like, yeah, that, I don't, that doesn't track for me. And it's funny because I was rewatching season one after we talked, I think the first episode. Um, I rewatched season one because I was like, I didn't, I hadn't done that. And I was like, I should do that. And so I was paying close attention to her therapy sessions with Perry and Celeste. And like, there is, um, she is like, uh, pushier, more aggressive, I'll say, more aggressive than I, than I, my experience with therapists. And at one point, Celeste is like, Jesus Christ. And she's like, she, she even says, she's like, this is my style as a therapist. Like, I don't pull my punches. I do this. And sort of like when it was in, in pursuit of, um, get this woman away from this man who's battering her. I guess it like, it made more sense to me, but especially when you see Madeline and Ed in that office and that whole conversation. And when she's like, are you worthless because you didn't go to college or she talks to Ed, she's like, we'll get to your betrayal. And I was just like, what is this language? What is this confrontation with the new client? Like, what is, what is any of this? So I was just like, I was really off all the therapy stuff um, in this episode. Do you have any like other thoughts about it? Um, how it played out? Yeah, I, 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 I think we touched on this in an earlier uh, still watching episode, but like she starts the therapist, um, Dr. Reisman uh, starts to feel a little bit like prurient. Like she's a little bit like too into like prying at these people and, and getting them to sort of like realize the worst about themselves or not, if not about themselves, about their situation, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and she's like in, in the scenes, in the scene with Madeline, uh, she seemed like turned on almost. <laughs> and, and I, so I, I think your kind of initial suspicion, cause I, I loved her last season cause I felt like, oh, here's this, this necessary person like speaking soft truths to someone who needs to hear them. Um, yeah. but now I'm like, oh, I don't know. Like there's something, maybe it's because I've realigned and I'm now like, you know, let's circle the wagons around these people and I don't like anyone trying to poke at it. But, um, yeah, I, I, I saw the kind of like full on angle of what you were talking about, about the therapist uh, in this episode, for sure. Yeah, I think I was have been like leading the witness for two <laughs> two episodes because I'm like, this is <laughs> yeah. the one I want to talk about. Like, right. she says, you miss the war, Celeste. You self-inflict your wounds. Are you an addict, Celeste? Is Perry your drug? I mean, I don't know. It's just like everything she says. I'm like, lady, like, take the foot off the pedal. Like, I don't know. Draw, draw this out. You know what I mean? Because like, I guess the urgency made more sense when Celeste was in active danger. You know what I mean? And she was like, I need to push you because you need to get out because I believe he's going to kill you. When it's dealing with Celeste post, like, her traumatic stress from the situation, and, and uh, you know, I actually believe Celeste probably is self-inflicting wounds. We get, we get like, you know, her covering up with makeup. Like, I think, I think that's possible. I think it's, it's very possible. But, like, there's no urgency of, like, he's going to kill you here. Hopefully like not that Celeste is going to do that extreme amount of self-harm. And so in this case, I feel like just drawing a patient out would be the more advisable route. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. She's also mixing her metaphors because I like this sort of, you miss the war. I I like that. You know, I've talked to people, to soldiers, people with PTSD and then to be like, then to shift from the war analogy to drugs. It was just like, okay, like let's pick one for this session (laughs) and stick with that. On the flip side, let us please talk about the best therapist in all of Monterey, which is Dr. Peep. 
um, Emma Bella's new therapist. Uh, who- oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and I liked it, but it was also like, wow, this episode's wacky because, like, yeah. <laughs> that was insane. Yeah, that was completely insane. Um, her like little fake voice and fake teeth, and then like her let's switch to business sort of thing. Um, I don't know. It really worked for me. But like, what do you what do you think of this whole like Emma Bella is traumatized by uh, climate change discussion in the classroom and um here's here's a child uh psychologist to talk to her about it well first of all she was played by the great carrie kenny from reno number one and many other funny things um so it was fun to see her in entering entering this world because it it does feel like a little bit of a hermetically sealed sealed world and so when someone else you know or recognize from something else kind of enters it it's a little jarring but i liked her um also i think that leanne moriarty i don't know if this is her name in the book um so maybe it's a david e kelly thing i don't know but like and I, no offense to anyone out there with this name or with a child with this name but like I, amabella is such an annoying name it's hmm? crazy but like, i love it i love that it's crazy i love that like she named her child amabella and that like teachers have to say amabella with a straight face when they talk to no, it's about her daughter perfect yeah. and 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 it, and it it sounds so perfectly awful coming out of uh, you know, I- I involved in it, like a, an angry t- tirade about something like my precious Emma, but you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a perfect bit of profiling. Um, and I don't know. I, I think that this episode went with regards to Renata. Um, Doreen St. Felix at the New Yorker, who's a great cultural critic, wrote something interesting about this season for the New Yorker.com when she was talking about the sort of real housewives of it all. Mm. And I feel like this episode with Renata was like the most housewivesy, not necessarily with, Amabella's, um, you know, very real stress about environmental collapse, but more sort of with her dealing with the husband, who's this complete, obviously loser, very Joe Giudice, uh, or many of the other husbands on Real Housewives, be they in New Jersey or in Orange County or wherever. And he's down in his hideous man cave that has pinball machines and like painted walls like he's at a Chuck E. Cheese like like um and so while I laughed at a lot of that I laughed at the child psychologist I laughed at the name Amabella I laughed at Laura Dern just spinning off the planet I also it it felt cartoony in a way that was pleasing in the immediate but I don't know that it does much help to the show in the long term it's funny because I actually I had this I had this question because like we got some emails you know, last week we talked about on a most memeable moment and there's no way to like talk about that without talking about Laura Dern and then that's a lot of the conversation I've seen around the show has been the memes of the show um, whether they're like Meryl Streep memes or or Laura Dern memes and like I'm not here to knock meme culture I'm all for it but I'm like I'm not sure there's a great there's that like deeper discourse that we want to have around a show. Maybe I'm missing things. And maybe if if people are listening or like, no, I read this, like you mentioned um, this New Yorker article, I would love to read that. Like if people want to send me like some of the deeper coverage that maybe I'm missing of the show, I'd I'd love to read about it. Um, But I think this episode is an example of the show just being like, Oh, I don't want to use this word because it's so gendered, but like can't be, you know, in a way that like loses some of the like um, heft of it. And the heft, I think we get, where we never go into camp and where there's always like heft is well, Celeste stuff, 
um, Jane stuff and Bonnie stuff. Like that's that's the stuff to me that always feels like anchored in something deeper, and especially the Bonnie stuff. Like I am never displeased to cut away to Zoe Kravis this season. So like, not that I was last season, but I'm just like, oh, good, some Bonnie stuff. I'm really into it. So, um, but yeah, but but like then you throw Renat, you so like like Gordon's train set, like his whole toy room. I know it's supposed to like convey his like childishness, but I don't know. I just it it it's not like um coming together weaving together in a way that i think that season one did a little bit more effectively like the renata hysteria worked better for me in season one uh maybe because she was in an antagonist role and that's that's what that needed for a little while you know i I don't know about it yeah i think also this kind of brings up another issue i had with the episode which is i feel like andrea arnold's direction um, well, she's coaxing great performances out of people and there are really nice moments. Um, I, I, it, it's, it's less a problem with Andrea Arnold's direction and more a sort of comparing it to John Mark Valet's direction of the first season. And I'm wondering if maybe all of his relentless style, all of the cutting and the, you know, the sort of quick, you know, sort of quick imagery and, 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 and this, this sensory sort of hypnotic spell, if in some ways it was laundering, a lot of the soapiness I'm seeing now in this season because it's shot more plainly, you know? Um, and I just, I just kind of found myself m- missing some of that heightened style that in the past two episodes, Arnold has really only gotten to at the end with these kind of montage things right before the closing credits. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I'm wondering if maybe there was st- some of that throughout this episode. Um, the, the sort of staginess of it would have been less glaring to me but um i don't want to criticize what arnold's doing because it's still a very well-made show i think it just maybe there's something a little too straightforward about it right now yeah and i and the montages aren't sitting with me beautifully in the end just because mm-hmm. there's been like a couple of them in a row and i'm like i don't need to check in with every character at the end via montage you know so and it feels like this nod to the style of last season and it's like if you do, if you want to issue it like you can you can let it go entirely but like having it at the very end reminds us that the whole the, the entire episodes last season looked like that, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And it, you know, so it just it, I feel like it's 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 trying to um, cover up for something or or, or sort of um, make up for a lack that it's like, well, don't remind us of the lack then, because you know maybe we wouldn't notice it if you weren't try- constantly reminding us of it. Yeah, um, and that brings me back to Bonnie, um, because I feel like the where we get it the most is with Bonnie, because uh, as I mentioned at the top, there isn't like a flashback structure of the show this season, except for like, we're circling the drain on something with Bonnie and her mom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we get some hints of, you know, rewatching season one, there's this moment um, early on in the season when Ed is like, and I actually kind of forgot how much of a creep Ed is in season one. So um, I don't know. I take back some of my um, Ed feelings that I might have expressed elsewhere um, because he's a bit of like he like there's a part where he's like ogling Madeline's like teenage daughter almost. And he's like very uncomfortable with it, but he's still doing it. And I'm just like, OK, um, but he goes to see Bonnie at the yoga studio and he is just like straightforwardly ogling her and at one point says i love sweat on women like it's just like such a weird fucking weird thing to say but anyway um uh, he 
he talks to her about like the hard life Madeline had growing up. So maybe like Bonnie could go easy on her in season one. He talks to her about this and Bonnie goes, we all have like, we all have hard things that we went through. You know what I mean? Like hinting at something. And then she does this thing in season one that she does a little bit in season two um, where she constantly puts her hands up to her throat. And it's sort of like this, I think we were meant to understand it as like, some traumatic memory that she has that has to do with like either choking or breathing or something like that. Um, so that's like the hints of Bonnie's backstory in season one, but the show didn't have a lot of time for it. And so then here we are getting, uh, we are slowly getting it. It seems like it's going to play out a bit differently than it did in the book um, is my perception of what, where it's leading us, but it seems mm-hmm. to be like some, some traumatic mom alcoholism, water drowning uh stuff what did you think of this like bonnie and her mom stuff here i I thought it was interesting and i i i think that for me i'm i i just i like that um i like having a character who we've known from the first season but we can learn more about now you know because i think at its worst and i i i should clarify i still really am really enjoying the show i like this episode for the most part but like i think that like we're getting sort of a little bit louder now from renata a little bit louder from renata like we're hearing the same the same hit just kind of turned up a bit Mm -hmm. whereas i i really enjoy that with bonnie it's like oh there's this whole new landscape and i and i think that whatever sort of mystery of their of her past is there it's being um teased out in a very graceful way um and i think that kravitz is really good yeah she's she's incredible um crystal fox who plays her mother also really great Um, yeah had a great Mm -hmm. conversation with her on the podcast last week where i think she called her character nasty nice something like that (laughs) um (laughs) and um uh, yeah it's it's interesting to me once again the modulation where it's not just like it's not just that bonnie's mother has come to town they have some sort of history that might have involved abuse like that seems to be what they're hinting at um and it's not like bonnie's immediately like get out of here because you also have the scene where like her mom uh elizabeth is singing to sky her granddaughter and and like bonnie comes in and like sings this song that obviously like she remembers from her childhood and harmonizes with her on it and stuff like that and it's like a really beautiful moment so to mix that moment in with what else we get in this episode of it. That's the kind of like complicated modulation that I really love when Big Little Lies does. Cause it's just sort of like, that's family, man. Right. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's just sort of like, it, it's never easy and no one is ever like, I mean, sometimes people are just villains, but you get that also with, um, when Mary Louise and the boys are looking at these old videos of Perry, you know what I mean? And like, and the boys have this fun uh, I love that thing from season one where Perry's like fun parenting tactic was I am the monster like sort of thing like I I loved that whole thing and so the fact that they brought that back via these videos um, and via these memories um, I thought was very very powerful did you did you like that part um, the the memory book yeah I did like it I, I think it verged a little bit close to on the nose but I think it, 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 it didn't quite get there, which I, which I was glad about. Um, I, I also really appreciated that we finally got some clarity, uh, about what would the Meryl and the kids were watching on that iPad that, cause we, that, 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 that particular production still came out, I feel like a year oh, ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and people true, were memeing true. it. People were memeing it. And like, I think I, I, I forget what I, what I sort of put on the screen. 
uh, to, to sort of make a joke about it. But like, you know, I was like, oh, that's what that was. Um, and so what that means is it brings it's bringing us one step closer to the ice cream. <laughs> or the iced coffee True. or whatever it is. Every, every day we're closer to – I mean, but that's exactly the sort of Real Housewives uh, extremity that we we're saying, like, maybe we don't <laughs> want. But we do. True. But we do. We but want we do. it and we don't. Um, yeah. All right. And then and then the last thing I want to talk about is, is yeah, is Jane and Corey, um, who sometimes mm. in my notes I refer to as Aquarian boy, but his name is Corey. Um, and their sort of tentative romance here and her asking to, like, idle and neutral and and then he's already meeting her son. <laughs> and Bonnie rightly is like, this is serious. And she's like, no, nah, it's fine. It's like, Wah. okay. It's just surfing. Um, like, no, whatever. <laughs> it's no big deal. I'm just putting um, my I, kid's my- life in his hands. Like... <laughs> One of my favorite thing that Shaleen does actually uh, is when you see what Shaleen Woodley does with Jane is when you see Jane like getting really exciting, excited about parenting Ziggy. You got this in season one. He like he's playing t-ball and he like hits the ball and gets like a home run and she just like loses her mind. She's so excited. Um, And similarly, like when he stands up on the surfboard and she gets so excited and you're just sort of like, this is a young woman who has had this terrible thing happen to her. And she just wants more than anything for like her kid to be happy and feel successful, Um, which is like, you know, what, what all the kids want. But like when you see Jane really do it, there's something about like, I don't know her youthful exuberance or whatever it is. It's just like really charming. So, um, what do you think about Jane, Corey, Ziggy, yeah. and everything that happens to them uh, here? I agree that it's charming, and I think that it seems so out of place on the show because so much of – I mean, Celeste is a different story, but Renata and Madeline, like, so much of their children are really just an extension of their sort of ego and their status, you know? And and whereas Jane's enthusiasm for her kid is so authentic and 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 pouring directly toward him, it's it's like I want him to be happy and fulfilled and have experiences that are positive, you know. Um, so it, it seems so foreign in that context, um, which is why she sort of seems a little dorky. But it's like no, she's being genuine, is what that is actually. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I liked the stuff with Corey. Uh, I think he's so cute, Douglas Booth. Um, and he's, he's playing, uh, I think the thing with the hug that turns into a dance, I thought that was cute. And I, I think it was like an, an interesting, um, uh, I don't want to say lesson, but a sort of interesting look at, at, at the sort of softer nuances of, you know, approaching the conversation about consent and, and, you know, sort of this errant, kiss attempt that was maybe too soon or maybe just not the he read the situation wrong and then to kind of come back at it and be like i'm not going to try to do this but i would like to do you know i don't know i thought it was gently handled and um uh you know and 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 it reminded me that jane is so much younger than everyone uh well not bonnie but like um than the other women and and um and and has a bit of a um you know there's still there's still a sort of uh uh, there's a youthfulness to to this courtship in, in, in a way that I find yeah. it is kind of a nice um, reprieve from some other aspects of the show. Yeah, I really agree, and I I think that like it's funny whenever whenever I watch Jane stuff, I'm like. Oh yeah, Shalane Woodley became famous for playing a pregnant teenager on ABC Family. Like that's how she started. Mm-hmm. It's like that that sort of like young mom kind of thing is is her bread and butter and like the the scene where they're dancing sort of awkwardly and she just like very 
very low key. If you want to talk about like high key versus low key, very low key, just like wipes some tears away. You know what I mean? And it's just like extremely subtle. I thought brilliantly done. And then like to counteract maybe some critiques you have about the direction of, of this episode, I think the choice, whosever choice it was and, and however it was accomplished to have the bus come by as he tries to kiss her. Oh yeah. And like, and it's just like, you're like, the yeah. sound of the bus is so alarming. And so then you're with her in her alarm, like instinctually, like physically in your body. And, um, I, that was just like a perfect moment. Um, I that was, it. yeah, uh, that, you know, kudos to Andrea Arnold. I mean, that, yeah. that, that was so well done and, and, and subtle. It wasn't like bonking you over the head with the, this sort of, you know, making, making this connection between the jarring sound of the bus and this case, you know, it was just, yeah, it was perfectly staged. Yeah. Um, all right. And then let's finish out by talking about um, Celeste. Uh, no, uh, Madeline's onstage meltdown. Um, <laughs> uh, the rainbow connection moment. Uh, first of all, uh, you will get the origin story of the otter hat um, that uh, the principal wears. Um, I don't think he's wearing it at this assembly, but I just want to say that the, the origin story of the otter hat is coming and I really am excited for you all to hear it uh, in our interview. Um, but uh, another thing that happened on the Otter Bay School stage was this uh, this whole thing from from Madeline and Ed sort of watching her and not doing anything to help her. Um, what did you think... I mean, this seemed to be, this was like, this is about them. Uh, this is about Ed and Madeline and maybe the way in which in the past Ed has like shielded Madeline possibly from some of her like musical theater tendencies yeah. <laughs> or whatever it may be and uh, is no longer there to like help her out here. Uh, what do you, what do you think of this? Well, I think as a, as a, on, on principle, I, <laughs> de- I, I, I do not support ever the, public speech that's supposed to be about something but then becomes about something else you know personal uh-huh. I, I, th- I think that trope uh-huh. is so overused in movies and tv um I, the most gr- egregious example would be steve carell in crazy stupid love where he yes for some reason gives a speech that. about love to a middle school and it's like what the fuck is happening <laughs> like um this is not that um and no. reese witherspoon delivers it so well um but i think that this pointed at this this incident pointed at um Something that I also saw in the Renata scene where she storms into the principal's office about, you know, angry about the, the kids are learning about climate change um, is, is this relationship that they have with this poor principal, like, realistic? Like, they're so horrible and, 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 and are not really concerned with any sort of sense of public propriety. Um, and maybe I don't, I'm just like reading that part of the world wrong or Monterey society wrong, but like, it feels to me like things would be a bit more hidden behind a, a wall of a veil of tact and, and sort of, you know, public courtesy, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, so I don't know. I felt like this was a big sort of Madeline expressing things in a way that didn't quite feel organic. But, um, you know, how can you be that mad when Reese Witherspoon is so good? She's so good. I keep thinking about the fact that Reese Witherspoon, like, asked for the infidelity plotline to be added to Madeline's like story in the first season so she could have like a drama that sort of like came close but does not really come close to matching like what celeste is going through and stuff like that and um 
And and so then every time I see something like this, I think about the fact that like Reese is an exec producer on the show and that if I were Reese, I would want like the chewiest stuff to like dig into. And she's so capable when she has that stuff. Um, but then everything just feels like, okay, can we give Madeline something like a little, something a little more extreme to do? I'd like to do that. Do you know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. what this feels like. Is like, can we give Madeline something a little bit more, um, unravelly for me to do i don't know like it's so funny because like reese uh, i want i do want to talk quickly about like reese as a performer she's so talented and i but i think all the time about like gone girl and, and wild which are two book projects that she read the books and wanted to adapt them into films and wanted to play the lead in both and uh you know did i think beautifully do so in wild directed by Jean-Marc Vallée and then was told by David Fincher, I believe that she like could not have the part, even though she was the exec producer uh, in Gone Girl. And it went to Rosamund Pike and said, who played the part beautifully. And I'm, I'm curious if you think like, when I think about that, I, I wonder like, Hmm, does Reese Witherspoon always know she has so much power in terms of, and, and, and like, and that's, great that she's all this creative power in Hollywood to pick projects, be involved in projects, blah, blah, blah. Um, but um, does she always know the right role that she should be playing is my question. And like, she's so good when Madeline is like this Tracy flick sort of stuff. And then is there something else she wants Madeline to be that, uh, you know, is, is not fully on the mark. I don't know. Does any of that make sense? Yes. Yeah, yeah, there is, yeah, there's a sense of, um, well, I want to have fun too, you know, and I don't blame right. her as yeah. an actress or a producer. Who could? Yeah, um, who could especially when, you know, Laura and Nicole won Emmys and, you know, you know, like, and she's like, well, I'm here too. And I'm, you know, a big part of this project. Um, but I, you know, I, uh, it, that, that more still has to serve the world of the story. And, I don't necessarily know that like big, big public outburst speeches like that do that said, I really appreciated the scene between Madeline and her daughter where she was like, look, she's like, it's not your fault for blurting it out loud. It's my fault for doing it, you know? And I like seeing that sort of more human understanding side of her. And I think that that felt like a realistic conversation that a mom, a certain kind of mom would have with a certain kind of kid. Uh, And, um, you know, so so anytime this show kind of gets a little too big for me, it then there's another thing to kind of offset it, um, which I appreciate. And um, you know, so so I haven't I haven't I haven't lost faith yet, but uh, yeah. When no, I- and I'm I'm so far from losing faith. I just want yeah. to make that clear. Like I'm yeah. not I'm not like not interested or into it. I just like that just sort of like rings a little bell for me sometimes when mm-hmm. I like I'm like, would Madeline really do this? Or is this at all a function of, uh, you know, Reese wanting something really fun and weird to do? You know, I agree. I think her stuff with Catherine Newton, who plays Abigail, her teenage daughter, all of that, I think, has been so good. And what I love seeing is the difference between, you know, like you talk about uh, Jane is a young mom. Madeline is obviously a young mom, right? Like she was obviously very young when she had... Uh, as was Reese. Reese was a very young mom when she had her daughter, Ava. Um, and like when you see that relationship between Madeline and Abigail, which is kind of closer than a mother daughter relationship, maybe, I don't know, quote unquote ought to be or whatever, just because they're like, 
I don't know. There's something about when Madeline talks about being a single mom, raising Abigail, their connection, how they, they had to be this little unit of two in the world before she married Ed and like when Nathan was completely out of the picture and all that sort of stuff. And so their closeness um, is going to be different from the way that Madeline raises her other daughter, Chloe. You know what I mean? Like there's a, there's an age difference there. She's a different mom. It's a different family dynamic, all of that. And I like seeing that those differences. And that is a relationship. Once again, those are scenes that I always like kind of relish is Madeline talking to Abigail. And yeah. you see it in like um, when, when Chloe came in, I think it's episode two, Chloe came in to sort of try to get her iPod back from her mom or her phone back from her mom. Uh, no one uses iPods anymore, Joanna. And um, and she asks if Ed, her dad, she's like, is he is he mad at me? Or like, you know, yeah, is he mad at me? And Madeline goes, well, he's mad. But that's what families <laughs> do. And it was like so like she didn't have to. She could have said like, it's not your fault, honey. Like, it's OK. She doesn't do that, which I kind of liked. And then I like that she does do that for Abigail because it's just they have different relationships and so for Abigail she's like it's not your fault I own this completely you know what I mean and so it's like she doesn't have that for Chloe but she has it for Abigail because their relationships are so different I like that like little compare contrast kind of thing yeah all right anything else you want to say about this episode Richard um no I I just would say uh I would just echo Renata and say sell your shit <laughs> sell your toys, sell your shit. Yeah. Um yes, and I I uh I will now take us to our conversation with the great PJ Byrne. PJ Byrne. Professor Warren, is it pronounced nipple or is it Nepal? It's Nepal, damn it. It is Nepal. <laughs> <laughs> but the kids, the kids and, and the parents like to say nipple, and it's inappropriate on a lot of levels. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for chatting with us about Big Little Lies Season uh, 2, Episode 3, and, uh, you know, your entire career on Big Little Lies. I, I had a question for you, which is this. Do it. How did this you, is the moment. How did you ensure that you would be the only member of the Greek chorus to survive to Season 2? Did you murder your lovely coworkers? Like what, what happened to make sure that you made the cut to see? Yeah, you just said it right there. They're, they don't, they don't exist anymore. They're oh, all gone. All right. Um, but I did buy all their grave sites before, so I didn't want to, you know, burden their family as well. Yeah. But they're not, they're not with us. They're not with us anymore. How deep are those bodies? Um, I, <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I, I don't know. I, th- I feel very lucky. I think as the principal of the school, you, uh, you get to live on, if you will. Uh, you know, families move and come and go, and a lot of those other people were the parents of the kids, and maybe there's new kids came into the school. So uh, it's also it's also tricky to get everyone's schedule right, and uh, especially with these amazing, you know, actors and actresses. I mean, I can't, I still can't get over the fact that you have all these movie stars. They were not signed up to do the project. And they figured out a way through scheduling to get everybody back to shoot this thing. And on top of all of it, let's throw in this up, up and coming actress named Meryl Streep. I mean, it's insane. Yeah, give an ingenue a chance, you know. Um, yeah, just give her a shot. Give her a shot. Yeah, she's doing pretty well with it. Um, she's doing fine. <laughs> so, um, I, w- I want to talk to you about. Mostly, I want to talk to you about all the musical moments that have happened at Otter Bay this season, but we'll, we'll get to that. Um, let's, let's start with 
you're so great in season one, and then I feel like you get to go even more sort of off the hook in in season two. Um, what kind of conversations did you have around the way in which your character might expand or dial things up a little bit this season? I think I think obviously they sort of like took the took the handcuffs off a little bit and they let me dig a little deeper. Uh, I think you'll see that in what happened, uh, you know, in episode three, I was kind of, you know, I was allowed to, to, to let, to, to run free. Um, but the, the good thing about before is like, you know, DVD Kelly kind of let me do my thing. When John Mark like loves, uh, people to improvise if, you know, if that's their thing. So I was like, you know, allowed to do that. Um, and then Andrea, just, especially in that scene with Laura Dern, she just let us go. And I don't, I don't think people, I feel like Laura Dern does not get enough credit as like one of the world's best improvisers. I think, you know, everyone thinks all these male comedians like, you know, Will Ferrell and Steve Carell and all these guys, which, and they are in Jim Carrey, which they're off the charts amazing, but Laura Dern and Reese as well, but they are some of the greatest improvisers out there and uh in that scene we were just allowed to do whatever the heck we wanted and it just that's that that to me is some you know is it that scene in particular was one of the most fun times i've ever had acting and even before it started uh you know that that first take we did i didn't realize the level that laura was gonna really come at me and i was like oh oh she's i'm in the deep end of the pool and she's like She's drowning me. So, like, once I knew it was going to be game on like that, it was it was so fun. And then Andrea just kept giving us carte blanche to keep going. And I think the cool part to know, at least for the, you know, for the fans and the viewers, before each take we started, mm-hmm. um, Laura would literally, like, was just walk back and forth like she was a tiger. Just like, and someone was going to let that tiger out of the cage to eat, you know, and that's, it was like crazy. Like, holy shit, she's going to come at me. And then I'm like, I better, I better raise my game. And that, that's what was so great about that scene though, too, because, you know, in that scene in particular, I feel like, you know, parents essentially drop their children off at school, right? And it's like dropping your heart off at school. And, you know, you want that, that school population and everyone in that school to love your child as much as you do. And for any parent to, you know, go from kindergarten through college and not have sort of a brush up with an administrator or a teacher or something associated with the school is like, I think that's unheard of. So, and, and from the other side of it, a principal or a teacher like has had some parents come at them and, you know, everyone has to have some level of decorum. Like some people cross the line and, you know, some teachers cross the line or a faculty member crosses the line. But the beautiful thing about this scene was I think there's the dream of every parent to like lose their shit, if you will, right. uh, on a faculty member or a principal or a school administrator. And really, it's the dream of every administrator to like lose it and just be able to go at a parent thinking because they're out of control. Now, in my case, he still is the principal. There is a witness there as another teacher. So he has some sense of decorum. But when, when she pushes his button so far, he can't help but like really like stab back. You've mentioned before the, you know, that Andrea Arnold just sort of let you guys go um, in the in this scene and, and improv wise. A big question I have from the outside looking in is that I feel like I understand how Jean-Marc Ballet runs a set only having talked to him, you know, from his work on Sharp Objects in season one. And then what's interesting to me is the final product seems so similar between these two. But what are their, what is the difference between the directorial styles of Jean-Marc Vallée and Andre Arnold um, in their approach here? 
That's it. Well, look, I think, I think Andrea obviously had to come, like people were used to a style and I, you know, the DP I'm sure had to be like, we have to sort of match this, um, you know, uh, but uh, for 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 Jean Marc's style, which is which is great, on some level they are very they're very similar, at least from my experience. Jean Marc is great, and 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 honestly, if I was ever one day like my dream is to direct a movie, is to kind of do it the Jean Marc way, like taking all the knowledge and I've been blessed to work with like amazing, you know, godly directors from like Scorsese to Clint Eastwood Who? to Jay Roach, Mike Nichols, yeah, oh. that guy, oh, okay. those guys. <laughs> uh-huh. But but you got so so and the thing is like let's be honest the first movie I'll ever direct is the budget's going to be tiny so I have to move quickly right. and Jean Marc is sort of the master of that because his DP his director of photography is this guy named Eve and and his gift is not putting all these lights in so when you're doing a scene right you walk in there's tons of lights and then you sit down and you do the scene and let's say and if you're lucky enough to have two cameras you know let's say the cameras are over your shoulder shooting the person you're having the scene with right. And it can be very intense. Like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your mother. And you're holding a gun, whatever the scene's about, right? And it's very heavy duty. Right. But then when they say cut and they have to turn the cameras around, that means they have to change the entire lighting for the scene. So you're going to go outside but anywhere between 15 to 30 minutes while they set up everything, right? Yeah. Where Jean Marks, the gift of Jean Marks and working with Eve and both of them is we have two cameras that's behind me. We're doing the scene. It's very intense. Jean-Marc is like, oh, I like that. Do that again. Say that line you said. Let's start the scene over and say this. Or now maybe throw this in. Or now just, just be free. Be free. And you're just doing it, and you're playing, and you're playing. And then you've sort of like found your way to find exactly what the scene is going to be, right? right? And then it's like, okay, great. And then they just go to the other side of the person you're having the scene with. They go over their shoulder. So you're not going outside to slow it down. You're always in it. You're always feeling it, and it's just seamless. And I love that. And you're getting so much stuff so that means in editing you have so much stuff to work with which is great and now Andrea is sort of very similar but she's a little more like freeing like she's not sort of she throws a suggestion here and there but she just lets you play and she's capturing just as much and and I think because you know they had to sort of match that the 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 style of it the cinematography of it yeah um I feel like there was some similarities between them because of that yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of incredible, the finished product, looking at the two. And I'm like, I I mean, I see Andrea Arnold in this. I see it a lot from her. Yeah, for I don't know, sure. From her perspective sure. and the stories she likes to tell, but also just the style match is, is pretty impeccable. So I'm I think she had to match, but you can't help but be you. And so you see Andrea in it. And yeah. I don't know. I had so much fun with her, and it was like – but she like she has a different energy. So we would like dance in between, you know, setups and stuff like that when we had to do setups. So, uh, you know, Jean Marc would like to have music every once in a while. Uh, you know, Jean Marc though sometimes could be like a tough coach, where Andrea is like, you know, more of a uh, more like a loving nurse, if you will, sometimes. Okay. But I I I grew up having all different kinds of coaches, so I kind of love them. Like, let's go, let's you know, let's rough it up, let's here we go. So and I don't know, both of them were amazing for me and. Uh, Hope that hopefully that's why I got back on season two and pray to God wouldn't it be great season three I don't know I, I don't heard, know I heard it's already happening that's what I heard I heard it's just centered is it on official you, on your character no I'm sorry I, that was that oh was my god unkind. <laughs> um, all right <laughs> you're like you didn't get the call I'm like wait say wait what what um, TJ Byrne just jumped out of this oh my god devastated oh no um all right so you mentioned what it was like to work with the caged tiger that is Laura Dern um, oh my god I love her I what, love her yes what about your scenes with with Reese both in the premiere and in um, episode three, she has this big sort of onstage meltdown. Like, what are 
what kind of energy does she bring to those scenes? And also, what is it like to work with an actress who's also so much involved on the producing level of a, of a project like that? Yeah, great question. That's all. Look, I'll I'll, I'll try to tackle all of that. Um, look, first and foremost, as a father of two girls and uh, that are two and five, and then getting to go to work every day and having two amazing female bosses. You know, one being Nicole Kidman, and then one being the great uh, Reese Witherspoon. Um, and on a show that is just, you know, that, that is, seems, you know, that there's six female leads. Uh, I love that because I feel like, you know, these women are really like blazing a trail. So when my girls kind of grow up, they won't even understand the idea. It's just like equal pay for everyone, for men and women. That's just how it, how it is. Like, and I feel like, you know, these women are, are a big part of that, which is amazing. And also they're, they're great bosses. They, they are so giving uh, you know, they want, they want you to succeed in the scene, especially Reese, as much as she's succeeding because she understands if everyone's sort of hitting and, and operating on all cylinders, that just makes for a, a better show or a better movie. And that's because she's been doing this for so long. And, and I think she, she said this too, which is she's the coolest. She's like, I grew up on sets like the, your family to me and you cannot help but feel that. So it's, she's incredibly professional. She's incredibly fun. She's an amazing storyteller and she really wants to like really mix it up with you, which is the best way to go to work every day. Like I always say, I just want to work with friends. And she, she's like, I just want to work with family. Like you just raised the stakes on that. (laughs) So, and that's, that's the best. And like, so even, you know, even on the outtakes, it's still funny. And I think in the gag reel, there's like me and just me taking the piss out of Reese, which is like, it exists somewhere. And I was like, it, you know, that's, it's just the best time. And it's all out of love and everybody's there for a good time, but we're there to work because, you know, she still understands this, how lucky we are to be doing what we're doing, especially with this show, especially at HBO. Uh, it's not lost on her. It's not lost on any, any of us. You know, I feel lucky to be an actor. I feel so lucky to work with incredible people. And I really, I think about that all the time when I'm on set and it's never, I don't take it lightly and I appreciate it. And that's why I do so much work and in, in preparation before I show up. So um, if I start the hashtag release the PJ burn cut of Big Little Lies season two, do you think I'll get that gag reel of you just taking the piss out of Reese or? Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I um, think someone will, someone somewhere will, will make that happen. Oh, thank you. That's the, the power, my influence. Um, so, uh, another really big, important, deep question, which is, uh, what was your first thought when you saw, um, the otter hat that you had to wear, um, this season? Um, but- okay. Funny story. Okay. You'll like this story. So, you know, I knew I had to show up and I knew I had to like sing this Otter song, which I think, don't quote me, I'm going to be on the season two album. I don't know for sure. So you can't quote me if it's going to happen. Um, <laughs> but I did record it somewhere in like a very nice soundstage. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> I know that I went into a beautiful soundstage with a very professional piano player and they like, you have to sing this song. I'm like, oh my God. All right, here we go. Um, so that there's that. But when I was up there, you know, I really wanted to, since last year was so insane, I wanted to like really like drum up the school spirit purposely, consciously. Um, and so when I was there, I was like, this, I need more, I need more. And I was like, I think I need, uh, like, do we have a hat that's an otter on it or like a, a the school hat? And then our amazing uh, costume designer, she's the best. 
uh, she's like, oh, my God, I think I can do I can pull this off. So they had an actual otter, like an, a stuffed animal otter, <laughs> uh-huh. which they literally cut the body off and stitched it to the hat. And that happened 15 minutes before they said action. So that all went down. Within, that was like on the day. I'm like, I need more. This doesn't feel right. I'm like, she's like, why didn't you tell me this before? I'm like, someone said there was like there was an otter like it. That's what that's what happened. Someone said we did have an otter school hat, right? But it just seems so tame. I'm like, this isn't big enough. This is just like your local like college style hat with just the letters of the school. It's like, it's not enough. It's not enough for a grammar school. We need more. Slap and then an she's, otter she's like, 15 yeah. minutes later, she ripped it, dude. She ripped it. She cut an otter in half <laughs> and put it on my hat. That's amazing. Um, another question I have for you is, uh, there's. You know, season one had this big mystery. It's not, I guess, that much of a mystery if you've read the book. You know, the answer was out there in a book if you wanted to pick it up at any point. Correct. But, it, but it's a, Correct. you know, it was a murder mystery story. Season two is not really a mystery. The mystery, I guess, is whether or not, um, you know, they'll get caught, tripped up by their own guilt, whatever it might be. Um, yes, but well, there is, well said. But there isn't, you know, a big, a big crime that we're trying to sort of obscure. Nevertheless, HBO has been. I am a cocaine dealer. That's the hook. <laughs> I'm a huge cocaine dealer. Yeah. <laughs> Nevertheless, HBO has been even more sort of tight-lipped about this season. You know, press got fewer screeners. Um, they, you know, they they told me they're being highly secretive with the back half of the season. So I'm not asking you to spoil anything, obviously, but I'm just I'm just curious. Like, do you feel like you had to be more secretive about the season? Did you have to keep more secrets personally as someone who worked on the project uh, this time around? I think. Look, I think that happens. Honestly, that happens with every show I'm on. Um, in the, it, 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 this, this show is unique in the sense, because if you're using the first season as an example, it's, you answered your own question. There's a book. People are going to have a kind of a good idea of what's going on. And like, what are we, what are we really fighting here? Like, we'll kind of switch it up and make it a little different. And maybe like, you know, here in, like in the book, the my character is a woman, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a man. It's like, is that a big hook? But, but I think in every show I ever do, it's like it, they scare the hell out of you. So like, make sure no one gets your script. Don't take any pictures on set. And they will not allow to be released after. I mean, you sign contracts. That's part of every contract I sign now mm-hmm. between any movie and any TV show I do. It's like I'm so freaked out about all of that <laughs> because you're literally signing your life away. Like you will now get arrested and your children will be taken. Right. Uh, and, you know, it's like, wait, what? What's happening? This yeah. is crazy. Yeah. All right. So it's just the the. Heightened... That's a terrible answer to your question. That's no, no, a terrible answer. I'm height, so sorry. The heightened. I let you down. Living. No, no. You're... We were doing so good together. We were doing so good. You always come through for me. Always come through. Yes. Um, thank you. My last question for you. This, I'll take the last question. This is... It better be incredible. <laughs> it better be the best question you've ever asked in your life. It's so Go. beautiful. I worked days <laughs> on it, and this is it. Um, you already mentioned sort of recording the Otter Bay song, but did you? Who wrote that? Where did that come from musically, that song? Uh, I think this guy, Simon, uh, the music director, uh, and this, this other guy, Danny, was a pianist. And uh, I don't know the total specifics. We were allowed to like add a hair there and have the freedom a little bit to kind of do it. But it, there was a whole music team that, that came up uh, with the song, and they kind of let me uh, run. Is it rickshaw with it? How would you say that? But yeah. Roughshod? Up, and what's the exact saying? What's that word that I'm looking for? I think it's roughshod, right? That's it. That's yeah. it. That's yeah. it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's <laughs> that's kind of how it all went down. The thing is, when you hand anything over to me, I am gonna imprint it with the PJ in some way. So <laughs> I think that's what 
you know, you can't help it. It's like, I'm going to riff, I'm going to play with it, I'm going to put my the PJ uh, into it as much as I can. So was the, that sort of was, was the, the final product. Was the snort you or was that on the page? The snort's me. Yeah, it said snort. I'm like, I got to really snort though. We got to, <laughs> we can't not, not snort. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. All right, that does it for Big Little Lies this week. We'll be back with episode four. She knows, ominous. Uh, Richard, until then, where can people find you? I mean, I'm going to be in my man cave. To, um, I was, I was going to make something up, but I just have to be honest. I'm going to be playing ping pong, or, or not ping pong, pinball. I'm going to be r- riding my trains, you know, just, just doing my thing. And I'll be tweeting at Rylas, and I'll be pu- publishing things, hopefully, on VF.com. Where will you be? <laughs> riding my train. <laughs> um, I will be passed out in the supply closet of a uh, an elementary school classroom uh, overwhelmed <laughs> by by climate change uh, but that won't stop me from uh from tweeting at joe wrote this uh even as i'm passed out i'll always be tweeting at joe wrote this or you can find me on vanityfair.com you can find both of us talking about a bunch of new releases this week midsommar and toy story and a bunch of other things over on the little gold men podcast and you can always email us still watching pod at gmail.com if you've got some further thoughts theories conspiracy theories corrections comments uh arguments as to why Renata's house is the best house to live in, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, You can email us there and we will see you next week.